Welcome to Defining Endurance, a podcast focused on providing actionable insights for endurance athletes. Whether you're an athlete just getting started in endurance sports or a veteran looking to gain an edge, the Defining Endurance podcast is here to ask curious questions with athletes and fitness professionals, and most importantly, dive deep on current training topics so you can become the best version of yourself. Let us wait no longer. Let's dive into this week's episode. Welcome back or welcome to the Defining Endurance podcast. I'm your host, Coach Andrew Simmons from Lifelong Endurance and Peak Performance Running. And today, my guest is Coach Ben Rosario of the NAS Elite, or better known as the Northern Arizona Elite. Uh, this is a Hoka 1-1 or Hoka One One, if you will, sponsored team um, that has produced some really big names and currently has athletes like Matt Baxter, Kellen Taylor, Stephanie Bruce, Alephine Tulia-Muck, you name it. If you've heard of one of those big athletes out of NAS Elite, they are coached by Ben Rosario. And I think the biggest thing I want you guys to walk away from today is understanding where culture plays a role in high performance. Getting down into that is the reason why they were able to produce so many good athletes and continue to produce some of the best athletes. It comes down to not just showing up and getting the most out of yourself, but looking at the team as a whole. He, uh, Coach Ben is best known, uh, at least right now in recent history, uh, coaching Alephine Tuliamuk, the 2020 U.S. Olympic Team Trials Marathon uh, overall champion. Um, but there's a number of names you already know there. Stephanie Bruce, Craig Lutz, Kellen Taylor. These athletes have continued to produce results year after year after year, and it comes back to the culture of success there, whether that's the importance and focus on team and having team meditations uh, on a weekly basis to leveraging the importance of having time together and showing up for each other, not just every once in a while, but every single day. So I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. Uh, it was a really fun one for me to record. Let's dive in to today's episode. All right, guys, welcome back to the Defining Endurance podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Simmons. And today I have a coach that uh, I'm really excited uh, to talk with, not just because of what he's personally accomplished, uh, but what he is currently doing uh, at the highest level of the sport. Uh, today joining me is Ben Rosario uh, from the NAS Elite, and he's uh, joining us from his home there in Arizona. Ben, thanks for thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I, I kind of want to want to go back because I think uh, a lot of people look at the NAS Elite group and they, they see all see all the athletes. But I uh, I want to make sure that we recognize uh, who you are. Um, you know, you're you're known as being the the youngest finisher of the marathon trials in 2004. And for those that have been in the game a while, for me. My first marathon personally was in 2009, but even then in 2009, there were still names like Meb and Josh Cox. And uh, growing up in Michigan myself, I knew of guys like Clint Varan and you know Trent Briney. Those guys were were on the east side. Um, but you know what what was it like lining up those guys uh, <laughs> at 24? I was very fortunate to to even be on the team. Really, uh, you know, a guy like myself with the credentials that I had, you know, wouldn't even get a spot on a group uh, or in a group these days. But uh, yeah, it was a blast. You know, I I was, you know, a running nerd. I was totally passionate about it, and the fact that I got to run on that team and run with those guys, like you say, Clint and Trent and Brian Sell and 
names that people maybe don't know as much, but Nick Cordes and Mike Franco and all those guys became my friends. And um, that particular race you're, you're speaking about in Birmingham was really the last trials where uh, it was the last trials before the the second running boom really, really kicked into high gear. And so it was kind of small in retrospect, you know, we just, it was a hundred guys. It, it, it was just the men, you know, uh, it was before they combined the, the men's and women's, uh, which they did in 2012. But, you know, we were just in this little middle school uh, and uh, out in the, out in the, um, you know, outskirts of Birmingham. And we ran about nine miles into, into downtown and then loops around downtown. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was a wonderful experience. I, I loved it. And our team did very well that day and Trent got fourth place and Clint got fifth place and Brian led the race for a long ways, but I think ended up 13th. Uh, he kind of blew up at the end, um, but that just fueled him and, and he made it next time. So I just talked to Brian the other day, actually. So yeah, th that was a great time in my life and I'm really grateful for, for, uh, all those experiences. I, uh, I have to imagine that like, you know, being in that moment at 24, you probably didn't see, you know, the trajectory that you're on even today, uh, back then at 24. No, you just, you just, it's very uh, present, you know, at, at that time of your life. And, and really I've always been like this. Uh, you just, you're just doing, you're just doing everything you can. You're just totally immersed in whatever you're doing at the time. And you, I don't know, you, you don't think ahead because, uh, there's too much right in front of you to think ahead. Totally. Did you always see yourself as a coach? No. Um, no. I still don't. <laughs> it's just one of the, one of the things I do and I enjoy, but I enjoy many things. So I'm, I'm curious to talk, you know, as someone that's, you know, built a small business myself, you know, I look at what you did with big river running. And so to go from the trials to big river running to now coaching the NAS elite group, um, what was it like, you know, when did you, when did you actually start, how old were you when you started big river running? So big river running company, if you're listening is a run specialty store in St. Louis. And I started that when I was 26 years old with a college teammate of mine. It was, we opened the doors in August of 2006. Wow. Wow. So that, that probably was a shoestring budget. You guys go to the bank or is that just some money you guys had and started? I don't think the bank would have given us any money. Um, uh, <laughs> we, you know, I'll say the numbers because maybe people will find it interesting, but, um, you know, back then, I don't know, even know, know what it would take now, but back then they said it would take about 200 K to really start a store, but we started with 60,000. <laughs> we wow. started with 60,000. It was 10 of my $10,000. I put in $10,000 Matt put in, I had won $20,000 at the twin cities marathon in 2005. I got second place there. Uh, it was the U S championships. And so that's where my 10 came from. Uh, Matt's 10 came from, he had been working adventure trips out West and, um, you know, had done really well. And then his parents put in some money. My parents put in some money. We had a couple of family friends. Um, and that was it. And we got to 60 and, and we, and we started it and we had less than 10 left on that day in August of 06 when we, when we opened the doors. But, uh, you know, we had worked really hard to spread the word. And, and I remember doing, we did $9,000 in sales on that first, very first Saturday. And we, wow. we never missed a payment. You know, we, we were, we were off and running and opened our second store or second location two years later and, and our third location two years after that. And, you know, it was just a whirlwind. You know, and I, 
and I think what's what's interesting is is how the landscape has changed. This was a pre-Amazon, you know, buy everything online type of mindset. Um, but even in today's you know landscape of buying online and things, I find it so important to be able to have a resource to go to. Um, and I, and I think that's why like I'm so happy to have like these small stores that start much the way Big River did. Um, so, you know, looking back on that, at some point, you know, you, you had to make a decision, you know, before, as, as we kind of broached the subject of, of NAS Elite starting. And, you know, if you're willing to share, like, what, what kind of got you excited to kind of make the change? Because uh, I'm assuming you sold your portion of the store um, and kind of used that to kind of fuel the next step uh, with NAS Elite. What was, what was that? You know, what, what, what got you moving in that direction? Well, you don't have the timeline right in the sense that I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, when I sold this, my half of the store in 2012, it was just because I was burnt out, fried, totally oh. fried, uh, mentally, energy-wise. Uh, it had just been an incredible amount of work. I mean, so many, so many projects that we took on. We said yes to everything, and we did everything under the sun you could possibly imagine a running store doing, and, and then some. Uh, we started you know, a huge cross country meet in St. Louis. We started a charity track meet, you know, we had road races, we had trail races, we had a youth team that I coached. We had a, you know, of course, beginning training team that I coached. I coached a bunch of sub elite uh, folks and, uh, and then the, just the daily grind of the stores. I mean, I worked almost every day. I remember looking at the calendar once and ha I had worked 74 days in a row, like full days, you know, and uh, just stuff like that. I was like, this is crazy, you know, and I couldn't say no to anything. And so, it was just time to, to leave, you know, and uh, for the health of my uh, family. Um, so my wife and daughter and I, my, my daughter was only one year old at that time. So when we sold our half, we moved out to Flagstaff, not to start a professional running team, but just to get away, just to right. get totally away. And uh, for a year, I did some marketing for Greg McMillan, uh, who I knew. And um, yeah, that was fine. Um, but I really had no, no, no plans, man, to be able to be very honest. And uh and then I started coaching some people here in Flag, and we started having some success. That was in 2013, and that's when the light bulb went off that, okay, I think I could do this because Greg's group was dissolving at the end of 2013, and so there was going to be sort of a um, a need there in the Flagstaff community for, for a group, and, and there was some athletes that – you know, obviously Greg wasn't going to be working with anymore that, that wanted it, that wanted the group structure. And I did feel like I had a pretty good handle on it from having run for the Hansons and just having followed the sport and, and, and having run a business. So I had all the experience necessary to do this. And that's why we launched in January of 14. It was not a, it was not, Hey, I'm selling the business so I can do this. It was, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then organically it kind of happened. Let's see. It seems like that was the the right way to go about it. That's, that's a, that's a, that's really interesting just cause I, I had always kind of in my head just kind of followed that, that mental timeline. I'm like, Oh, there was a gap there. Um, but I don't know if that was just like thinking and brewing and, but it sounds like it was a much needed time away from the sport to kind of, you know, let, let things pass and see what excited you. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think so. Yeah. It really, it really, there wasn't really wasn't much more to it than that. Um, I kind of wanted to have a chance and, and kind of focus our, our discussion today kind of around the the culture of, of the team. You know, I think what what's really interesting as as a coach, 
uh, because you you and I are are at different levels, whether we see each other at different levels or not. Um, you know, I, I definitely see and, and look up to what your athletes accomplish and, you know, what your athletes, you know, are doing, uh, on a, not only a day-to-day basis, but what they're able to do when it matters most. Um, and so one of the things that I'm really curious about, one of the things I've been researching a lot is how do we, you know, talk about and think about culture when it comes to groups? Um, namely when we think about runners, it's always a group training methodology. We start in the high school level. We've got a team. We go on to college. We have a team. And then we move outside of college. And I think a lot of athletes go, oh, man, I need, I need a place. I need, a, I need something that's going to give me what I've had for my entire running career. Um, you don't see a lot of people train as individuals. You see some. And some have you know little flashes of success. But it seems like to get the most out of athletes, they absolutely need that That you know, training dynamics. So can you kind of bring us into like, what is, if you could describe it, like the, the culture, how do you guys operate on a, on a daily basis? Yeah, we operate like a professional sports team, you know, um, the Lakers don't just roll out the basketballs, you know, they, they, there's structure to every day, uh, to, to every practice. And so, yeah, we meet in the morning every, every day for, for our run, uh, or our hard workout, uh, we meet, twice a week for strength and conditioning in the weight room together. We have strength and conditioning coaches. We meet a couple times a week for drills and strides and plyometric work the night before or the afternoon before our hard workout the next morning. Uh, usually have, we have one on your own day during the week. Um, so we spend an awful lot of time together, but we're, we're, this is our job. So, you know, I think the, the biggest thing that we try to do uh, from a logistical standpoint right away is just, is just, um, let everybody know as uh, during the, during even the recruiting process, that this is how we do it. You know, it's not a collection of individuals. It is a group. It is a team. It is a professional organization. We operate as such. If that doesn't appeal to you, that's totally fine, but then you're not really for us. Um, it's not a club. It's not, Oh, we meet every once in a while. It's not, Oh, we meet just for the hard days and everything else is on our own. No, it's, it's, we meet every day and, uh, and we, um, we support one another in, in our endeavors and we're better collectively for it. So, you know, like you mentioned, you guys meet every single day and it's not a, you know, it, you can show up sometimes. Like there is an absolute expectation that your athletes, all of them show up every day. Correct. Wow. That's, that's a lot. I mean, that truly is, that's, that's almost a full-time job. Is it? I mean, that's (laughs) what everybody does. We're we're adults. I don't think it's a lot to be honest with you. I mean, when you think about it, right. I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it's an hour, two hours, um, you know, may, maybe a little more inside a day. And I think that that's the peak inside that I don't think a lot of people see is like, yes, there's some workouts, but then that's the whole, the athlete's whole job is to perform for 90 minutes to three hours a day. And then everything else is fueling, recovering and getting that. I, yeah, I think it's all day because then they go home and they have to do certain things to recover and they have to uh, take care of their bodies. And, and they're, they're, they're thinking about, um, their, their job is similar to, uh, a quote unquote nine to five in the sense that, you know, they can't just go home and do whatever they want. There, there's a structure to their day, even when they're not at practice. And, most of the decisions they're making during the day are based around recovery so that they can be prepared for, for the next day. And, uh, it's, it's a demanding job. It's not, uh, it's not easy. Yeah. And I think, I think that's where we, we get that warping with social media, 
right? You you look at this and you see the parts of the day that are, you know, the, the maybe the glamorous side of the workouts. Um, but then you also see, you know, just woke up from a nap or I'm getting a massage or things like that. And we're like, those seem pretty nice. That seems like a great deal. But it's like, that's like what has to be done to keep the body in, in, in working order. And sometimes, um, you know, considering, uh, you know, Alephine, we were talking about her before, before we, we started recording today, like that's been a huge amount of, of, you know, comeback. And, you know, I don't think, you know, when, 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 when we had the trials and of course COVID threw everything, you know, sideways, um, how, how did, how was that, you know, I guess not so much perceived by the group, but how does that, an athlete that does, right? She needs time to build a family and, and do those things. Is she still showing up to practice? Is she still, you know, there, or is there like an understanding from the team that, Hey, these are extenuating circumstances. She's going to be back. You know, is there still, is she still showing up and providing support? Well, she, she had a maternity leave, you know, just, just like anybody would. She, her maternity leave uh, awesome. just ended very recently. And uh, as of May 1st, she's back and she's expected to be at practice just like anybody else with children would be expected to go to their job. Yeah. I, I think it's a big mistake, to be honest with you. Uh, when, when, as soon as you treat it right. like, Look, it's a job, but it's a fun job, right? But it is a job. If you if you start allowing it to seem like, uh, I don't even know what you would call it, a club or or things are optional, then all of a sudden you've lost the professionalism. You know, um, heck yeah, Alfine yeah. has to come to work, even if she has a kid. My wife has a kid; she has to go to work. You know, your mom and dad have kids; they have to go to work. Uh, you know, so I'm not trying to be hardcore here, but uh, I, I actually think it's a good thing to have this kind of structure because it establishes that, you know, this is a professional environment and we're going to operate in that way and we all hold each other accountable. Right. And that's a good thing. It, and it doesn't mean it's not fun. Right. It's super fun. It was so fun today to watch Alephine do hills. It was a blast and she was smiling and it was great. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, um, I'm there. Coach Jenna is there. Our assistant coach, our intern was there. I mean, we have a big support crew all putting in that time and effort. Nobody is immune and nobody is uh, outside of um, those um, requirements yeah. and those, uh, those, I guess, um, obligations. Everybody, Everybody's the same. I think that, again, the, the minute you start treating somebody different, then there's resentment and there's jealousy and there's bitterness and uh, everybody's the same on this team, whether you're Alephine and you're going to the Olympics or whether you're uh, one of the younger athletes and you're trying to make your way, um, you know, everybody's the same. No, I love that because I think that's why you see groups break up, right? You see people that it starts to become emotional and it starts to be like, you know, it's about this much attention or that much attention. And you see these tensions flare and then it's, it breaks up that whole dynamic and that can be, that can be a team ruiner. And that can take time to kind of, you know, rebuild trust. It sounds like the, if I if I were to look inside, you know, one of the big values absolutely has to be a trust between you and the athletes. Yeah, there 100%. has to be trust and there just has to be, you know, it's a, some of it is, is subconscious. It's understood, right? When you look at any job, if you go to your job every day and everybody's there busting their butt, you know it. You don't have to call it out. You just know it. 
and yeah. it and people feed off of that. The 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 most the most positive, the most productive work environments are the environments where everybody believes in the vision of the company or the team in this case, and they buy into it and they work hard and they support one another. The, these things work. The, these principles work in all sorts of um, industries, organizations, mm. teams, etc. It's, it's we're not reinventing the wheel here. We're we're just doing what we know works, and it's worked for us for a long time. Are those principles that you per se have have written down? Are these like you know you sit down when new people are added to the team and say, hey, here's the principles of what we believe. Here's the vision of the team, or is it kind of like it's inherent that this person, they, they're, they're about what we're about, quote unquote, you know, do you actually sit down and take the time to, we do have it written down. We, we sat down a couple of years ago as a team and and wrote this, um, it's about 10 page culture deck. Um, and it's, it, it wasn't what we wanted our culture to be. It was what our culture was. You know, I think if you, if you try to do that too Mm -hmm. early before you've established your culture, then you're really just writing down what you want your culture to be. What we did was we wrote down what it is. And it involves being there every day and being there for one another and sharing the load and taking taking it on when it's your turn and and um, all sorts of things like that and and um, behaving in a professional manner and sharing the journey with our fans and understanding your role as a brand ambassador for our sponsors and so there's business side to it there's a there's a training side to it there's a racing side to it it's all covered in there and the words are really straight from the athletes themselves I mean that meeting to create that took about six hours and, uh, and we've used it ever since. And I, I don't, I don't think we've really strayed from it all that much. Now we continue to treat each year, each segment a little bit differently. Each segment has its own challenges and its own feel and its own vibe. And, and that's fun because it keeps it fresh. You know, this, this season mm-hmm. is different than the, than the marathon trials segment. And, you know, next fall will be different from this spring. So uh, we do reset and, and kind of look at uh, each segment as its own uh, sort of, uh, uh, adventure. I love that. I think, um, you know, kind of in sharing in that, that idea of kind of letting the culture almost define itself versus you saying, here's the culture. Um, you know, from, from my standpoint, I just built out like my own small, like high school elite team kind of took my, my highest performing athletes and pulled them away so that they could get the attention that was necessary, but also allows me to give the attention to those kids that weren't getting it at the high school level as a club coach. Um, and I really said, Hey, let's sit down and actually define the culture. Because if I tell you what it is, I'm telling you what matters to me. I'm not letting you guys tell me what matters and then holding you accountable to it. And it's very subtle, but I think it's so important because if the coach says, you know, jump and you know, how high it, what, what's lost there is that they're not bought into it because they had no say. It's just that they have to live up to that. And if they don't, then there's, there's a gap. Um, and it's really hard to mind that gap, I think, um, as an athlete. Um, and you, you want to hold your athletes as accountable as possible as a coach. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I'm curious about, just because, again, I'm looking at this world from kind of, here's what I imagine it's like. And, and, loving having this opportunity to kind of talk with you about what's it really like. Like I know that when I've been in a session with athletes and I have my mindset, Hey, here's the workout today. We're going to, you know, we're going to do mile reps. We're going to do some K's today and it's not going well. Like, are you a coach? It's like, Hey, let's get through this. And we have to kind of work through 
you know, that session that day, this is what the adaptation we need, or is it, okay, we're going to move this and change this on the spot and be adaptable today. You know, where do you find yourself most often, or has it changed since you started the group? I mean, it's case by case. You have to use your gut and you have to be confident in your decision-making ability going in. I would say from a percentage standpoint, if, if a day's going bad, it's usually one of two things that I do. I usually either just cut it and it's done. It just wasn't our day. Or I just make you grind through it because sometimes you learn a little bit of something about yourself on those days. I very rarely adapt it. Oh, well, let's do 800s instead. Mm. Oh, well, let's do 200s instead. I mean, occasionally. But it's either – because, look, I take a lot of time and I put a lot of time and effort into – into making the schedule and, and um, I feel that it has a nice flow and a li- nice gradual progression to it. And there's a reason behind everything we do. It's very calculated. And so if it's not going well, um, it's just not going well. So again, that's, that's usually why I either just cut it off and it's done or, or, uh, or I make them grind through because um, sometimes, you know, that's just part of it. Uh, <laughs> you know, we right. train hard. So uh, sometimes the workouts don't feel great and that's okay too. Cause guess what? Sometimes the race doesn't feel great. Uh, but in the race, right. you know, you don't get to just adjust it. If you're out there running a 5,000, you don't get to say, well, I'm not feeling great today. I think I'm going to make this a 4,000 instead. It's just, that's not <laughs> how it works. Uh, 10 by 800 no. is the workout. Then we're doing 10 by 800. Uh, or if I really feel that the body uh, has something wrong, then of course we'll cut it. I, I love that. When, you, when you're communicating and, and writing a schedule, are you writing and saying, okay, this week, and you're writing a week at a time, are you like really sitting down and doing like a whole block, you know, or a whole period? Like, are you, how far out do you plan an athlete? I write out the entire segment. I write out the entire segment because I have always felt uh, that if you write it one week at a time, you are way more susceptible to getting caught up in the emotion of the fitness that's building and writing things that are either too hard, too soon, or um, just getting too excited about the workouts themselves and forgetting about where we need to be mm-hmm. on the big day. Um, you know, so if I, if I write it out beforehand and work backwards from the big day, you know, then it's basically saying, Hey, I know where we want to be two weeks out from this race, which means that four weeks out, we need to get, be getting ready for two weeks out, six weeks out. We need to be getting ready for four weeks out. It's all a progression. And I feel like I can ride it in a much, with a much clearer head, you know, before the segment even starts. Um, and then that keeps me on task. And then I, then I'm not at risk of, getting too emotional about, about writing the training. Now, all that to say, uh, it's, you know, it's not, it's not carved in stone. Um, I only give it to them one or two weeks at a time. Um, I certainly reserve the right to make changes based on what I'm seeing. Uh, but that's just what works for me is, is it, it's just, it's, it's more clear to me if I do it that way. So when we talk about what you're seeing, you know, I'm, I'm a guy that uses, I, I like to coach my athletes with with data and information. Like I use Training Peaks as a tool um, to you know understand the the fatigue and, and and use kind of some of those those data points to help guide my training with them. Are you a coach that kind of is more intuitive because you're there every single day in the moment and you're saying, okay, yep, we're going to do this many miles, or are you looking at it and saying, okay, this this is what I think I'm going to do? It also happens to match up with with the data information. Do you just is it literally written on a piece of paper, 
or an Excel sheet, or do you do you distribute it through like Final Surge or Training Peaks or anything like that? Well, uh, uh, we use Final Surge okay. for sure. Um, they're they're our training log partner and longtime partner actually, and they've been wonderful. And it's a great way to communicate with the athletes. It's really it's really easy, yeah, <laughs> which is nice and um, very simple to um, put the training into Final Surge. The athlete sees the training, they have the app, so all that is uh, is great. Uh, but, but yeah, I'm an intuitive coach, you know, I'm not, uh, studying their, their heart rate or, or these things. Um, I'm just watching them, you know, Love and that. just using uh, my gut and what I see and what I know from many, many years of doing this. And, uh, that's just how I do it right or wrong. Uh, it's right for me. Uh, might not be right for everybody. Uh, might be quite wrong for some, but, uh, that's, it's, it's right for Seems me. Seems like it's working. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you look, uh, you know, I make plenty of mistakes as, as anybody does in any job. Um, but if the mistakes are being made because, you know, a, a, a calculation was slight, slightly off, you know, I'll take that. Uh, if a mistake was being made because I just got way far away from our core philosophies and principles, then, you know, that's a real problem. Um, just basically trying to push the right buttons. And, you know, over the last few years, we've been very fortunate. I think, um, I think we've had an incredible amount of success. Uh, this particular segment we're in right now, we've actually had a lot of ups and downs and, and um, some things that haven't gone very well. Some of those things have been way outside of our control. Sure. But, uh, you know, look, you're not going to get it right every time. And, and sports and life in general is about um, aiming high. I mean, if you want to be a successful person anyway, it's about aiming high. And, and when you aim high, sometimes you fail. And dealing with that failure is part of it. It's part of sports, part of life. And, uh, you know, I think in the running world, sometimes we, I don't know, because maybe the data piece, you know, it's different than basketball practice where it's not as tangible, but I think because running can be so tangible, we, we expect like, Hey, this should equal this. And if it doesn't, it's like a total disaster. But, um, I, I think that uh, we have to be a little bit more realistic and realize that uh, not everything is going to go absolutely perfectly every time. Yeah, no, I think, I think you made a great analogy there. I think it, it's hard like to read a leadership book or anything from, you know, like Mike Krzyzewski or anybody like that. That's like a basketball coach. And they're like, it's about your team. Cause they're going to, you know, they're there to back you up. You have somebody to pass to and all these things. It's like in running, you don't. In running, you don't really have anybody to pass to. You hope your teammates are having a good day when you're having a good day and you can push each other, but also, right, you can be there to lift somebody up, but you can't turn their legs over faster and, you know, anything like that. Like, sometimes you just have to, you know, hope that the training that you've done is going to give you the result. And so I I think that, you know, looking at that, like, when, when we look at something, you know, the most recent thing we've had, unfortunately, is the marathon trials to really kind of discuss in terms of a, a large scale event. And, you know, when I look at that, like Alephine, Stephanie Bruce, Kellen Taylor, like there is so many women on your team there that rounded out the top 10. Like what, what was your words to them kind of going into that day? Was it just, hey, trust your training? Was it work as a team? Like what, how did you set that day up for them? I mean, it's a very pragmatic approach when it comes to race day because we felt very prepared. And so there's no, you use the word hope. There's no hoping. Yeah. And we, we, we knew what we were capable of. So it was just a matter of executing. We, we had done um, all the work necessary in practice. We'd prepared very specifically for the course and the demands of a championship style race like that. And 
you know, I, I met with them each individually. There was no, there was no team tactics um, at, at, at an event like that. Um, it's every woman for herself. Uh, and they were all trying to win the race. They were all trying to make the team, but um, you know, the talks were about what was best for them individually. And, and uh, of course, what was best for them individually was also what was best for us uh, collectively. So the, the race plans were not, not terribly different, but I, I didn't really need them to, to tell them to trust the train. They already did, right. you know, we were in great shape. So it was, it was really, um, there was really not much to it. Wow. See, I guess when it comes down to it, if you're prepared, there's, there's not much to say, um, really at all. And, and kind of looking even on the men's side, like two guys in the top 20, um, you know, can you give us some insight? Like you said, you guys were doing specific preparation. Were you guys trying to, you know, map out courses for long runs and things like that to try and mimic what they were going to see, you know, on race day, was it more about, you know, practicing that championship style and kind of using other teammates there to kind of, you know, surge in random places, things like that, just trying to kind of set up, like, how did you approach that? It was more about the course. We, we felt that the, the thing that would whittle down the fields on both sides more than anything was the course. And certainly we were exactly right on the women's side. I mean, it was just a steady rhythm and people just kind of fell off one by one, not, not, not from anything the competitors were doing, but just from the course itself. And so I think we nailed that race pretty good. Um, the men's race was, was a little more fiery. Uh, the pace was hotter. Uh, I did not uh, predict that. And, and I definitely got that wrong. Um, but we were nonetheless, um, we were prepared for the course. I mean, every, everything we did, the, the more specific the workout, the, the more specific we made sure the terrain was in terms of uh, the hills uh, up and down and constant. That, that's what I noticed when, when studying the course was not so much that there was giant ups and downs, but there was just constant ups and mm. downs. There were a couple pretty big climbs, uh, especially at, at the end in that little last, you know, 2.2 mile segment. But, um, but it was more so that the course was never flat. That was my biggest takeaway. So we tried to make sure that um, for almost all of the really big workouts, we were, we were on terrain that was never flat, that was just constantly moving up and down. And, and that's the way we prepared. Um, you know, Scott and Scott, it was just, it was just unfortunate because they didn't have the smooth segment that the women had, uh, because they got sick. Uh, they got sick, uh, in January, about six weeks out from the race. Very, 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 very nasty flu, uh, we think, or, or something, uh, who knows, but, um, it, it laid them up for seven to 10 days. And, and even, even there were some lingering effects after that. And so, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not an excuse. It's just, that's the fact of the matter. That's what happened. They missed a couple of really big, important sessions. They also kind of, you know, fell out of the rhythm that we had going. And to their credit, they, they, they came back and they did some really good work down the, down the stretch at the last minute and, and really came into the race full of, full of steam and full of confidence. But uh, the field was just incredibly deep. I thought they both ran very well, but um, you couldn't, you couldn't make that team without a, a flawless segment. I think yeah. it was just too deep. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's, that's, what's difficult is that, um, you know, we, we talked about, you can't always line it up perfectly, but there is something to be said about training and momentum and how it, how it moves into something like that. Because I think no matter what, no matter how prepared an athlete is, if they have something in the back of their head, that's kind of nagging them, um, you know, that, that's, that might play out on race day. And that may, that may be the thing that comes to play. Well, that's why I was so proud of them though, is I don't think that that's awesome. was the problem. You know, I don't, I think mentally they were, they were locked in and really believed uh, in themselves um, on the day. 
it was just physically they didn't have the goods because I think of, you know, some of the things they missed, uh, they just didn't have the same tools in the toolbox that the ladies had. And that made a difference. It, who knows how much of a difference I, I'm not sitting here saying, Oh, well, if we did that didn't happen, sure. they definitely would have made the team. I'm just saying that they would have had more to work with physically. So to kind of take a step back, you talked about, you know, you've got strength and conditioning coaches, um, you know, just as well as you're out there with them every single day. Does, do you do anything to leverage the mental performance side of it? Is there someone that you, you guys have on staff or is that just no, not really part of how you, you coach? Nope. We have a mental, uh, mental performance specialist that we meet with every single week. That's awesome. So we have a focus session every week as a, as a group and we do a group meditation at the end of the focus session. And that, um, has been great. Uh, wow. That's been going on for a couple of years now. And then some of the athletes see her individually as well. Her name is Shannon Thompson. She does a wonderful job. She works with the NAU team as well. Um, she's building quite a reputation and she is amazing. That's awesome. That's, that really kind of speaks to how closely knit your group is. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of groups that would, that would get together for a, for group meditation. Um, I think, I think that's awesome. Um, so kind of, as we, we kind of close things out here, I'm curious to, you know, how, how things are looking moving forward, you know, who knows what's really going to happen with Tokyo. It still seems like that's on some somewhat shaky ground. It sounds like it's moving forward. Um, you know, from, from oh, Tokyo will happen. No question. Tokyo is going to happen. I love it. So how, how then are you preparing for the humidity living in one of the driest environments <laughs> around? Yeah, we, we have access uh, to all the, all the latest and greatest doctors at the USOPC. They've been wonderful. We've had a couple of uh, conference calls that I've been on with them. I have another one uh, tomorrow. I think we're very prepared um, for, for how to acclimatize to the heat and humidity. Uh, we can do it at altitude. It involves essentially a two-week uh, process where you overdress and you uh, make sure that you're sweating on your runs. And, um, you know, this, this goes back a long time, all the way back to 04 when Dr. Randy Wilbur prepared, uh, helped prepare along with Dr. Uh, David Martin, uh, helped prepare Dina and, and, and Meb for their medals in, in Athens. And, um, we've actually used this, this method, um, in the past for different hot and humid races we've participated in. So it's not really brand new to us. Um, I've learned a couple of things, um, for sure. And, uh, yeah, I feel confident. Alphine will probably stay here um, all the way through, and we'll just use that two-week uh, protocol, yeah. and we'll go to Sapporo ready, ready to roll, as well as anybody else that makes the team from our group. Uh, I think we'll be we'll be very ready. That's really exciting. And so, you know, beyond that, right? As you mentioned, beyond the marathon, um, you know, head, heading into the trials, um, you know, what what are you what are you most excited about? Are you, it is I'm sure you've got some athletes that are uh, getting pretty fit. We do. Uh, it hasn't been the smoothest segment, as I, as I said. Um, you know, Kellen got hurt. Uh, Danny Shanahan got hurt. Fluky stuff. Um, Ryan Hill, who's on our team now, um, had a setback. So it's just been kind of a bummer uh, for those three. Uh, but then again, there are others who are really coming around. Um, and those three still have every opportunity over these last six weeks to catch fire, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, and I definitely believe that I've seen Kellen catch fire really quickly in the past. So um, she's running again now. So I feel good about that. Um, Steph Bruce is in monster shape. 
Uh, Lauren Paquette is really coming around. Um, and then our international athletes outside of the trials, Matt Baxter is actually in a great position to make the Olympic team for New Zealand in the 5,000 meters. So, you know, we're in a good spot. I, I just think that uh, we need to take it one week at a time, one workout at a time, really, and just continue to build um, fitness, momentum, confidence uh, each and every day. And if we do that from now until the trials or until whatever big race, uh, you know, is in front of us for, for the international athletes like Matt, um, we'll be ready to go. I love it. I love it. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to connect with me today. Um, you know, just wanted to kind of take a take a peek under the hood, if you will, of uh, how, how you guys do things there at the Nazlite. So much appreciated. Look forward to having a chance to talk with you again. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it.